Okay, we got some new people tonight. Let's just make sure we zone draft to make sure the packs don't get messed up. For those of you who don't know what that means, basically, if there's a pack between you and the person you're passing to, don't put down a second pack. Just keep that one in your hand until the person you're passing to picks that one up. But what if I put it down like rotated 90 degrees to make it clear it's a different pack? No, it's too easy to get that confused. Just don't pass the pack when there's another in between you. What if they're taking a really long time, though? No, just just be patient and do not pass that pack. But but what if I really want to look at the pack that I'm being passed? Listen. You shall not pass! The big exhale implies that maybe you're, like, dreading this. <laughs> All right, great. In that case, welcome to another episode of Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, not the birthday boy Maddox. Happy birthday, Andy. You Happy did it. You survived 35 years. Is that how that works? I don't know. It's off, um, off by one error. It's one of the three most... Yeah, I've been alive for 35 great. years because um, when you're just born, you're not one. In you're this zero. country, at least. I think they do it differently in some areas, but, you know, we're here. I have heard that before, but I think it's pretty rare that you're one when you're born. I think it's like one country maybe that does it all funky. Write in if you know the country where you're one when you're born instead of zero. We want to know. I think it's China. Anyway, happy birthday. Uh, I hope you had a good time. We didn't really do all I that did. Much. We were supposed Fancy. to record yesterday on my actual birthday, so I'm sticking with the birthday nicknames, but uh, but we ended up not doing that because I didn't feel like recording anything a podcast on my birthday. So now I have to do it all today. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's your birthday right. Every other day, you have no choice about what you're doing. But Kind of true. <laughs> this is our set review episode. So, of course, we have Parker on the line. Parker, also not the birthday boy, Lamascus. Thanks for joining us. Howdy. You know, since this is Lord of the Rings and it is your birthday, I'm a little bit scared that you're going to disappear on us halfway through. I thought about making a, a Bilbo Baggins reference. Little disappearing birthday boy. That'd be so funny if I just left in the middle of recording, <laughs> didn't say anything, just walked Anthony out of the recording would, studio, just hit under the carry table. on. Yeah, then you got to figure it out yourself. I mean, you guys are smart. You can, you can do it yourselves. I believe in you. Uh, this is our Lord of the Rings community set review episode. So we did our personal cube inclusions and review of the mechanics and themes on our previous episode. Check that one out if you have not. But this episode is not about us. It's about the community, okay? We're not self-centered here. This is the results of our survey we published, basically asking every cube designer who's willing to tell us what cards from Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings Commander they are trying out in their cubes. And, uh, you know, our goal here is basically, you know, it's the it's the most common type of cube content, as it were, to basically just make a set review and try and say, here are the cards that I think are best for cube. And we don't want to do that for a variety of reasons. And instead of just us speculating as to what the best cards are for cube, we basically ask everybody to do it for us. So that's why we do these surveys, so we can talk about the cards that you're most interested in rather than the cards that we think you ought to be most interested in. Parker, you want to run down the structure of this survey? Sure. So we send out this survey and actually this year or this uh, set, it's a little different because we weren't able to harness people on Reddit due to the strike that we support. But Social media just crumbling around us in all ways. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually a little different this year. We didn't send it in the same way, but we'll ask cube curators to answer two questions. What cards are they testing? Number one. And number two, how do they self-rate those cards on a scale of one to 10? One being, I don't think this is going to stick around very long. It's a very tentative test. 
10 being I'm very excited about this. I consider it a cube staple by whatever metric that means, whether that means power level, whether that means the right power level, not just like maximizing power, whether that means you really like the art and the flavor and you're like a Lord of the Rings super fan and, you know, that's why it's a 10 in your books. We don't care. We're just wanting to know how you rate it yourself. And then we compile the results and here we are talking about them. And this is a very popular set, I, I dare say. People are very excited about this set. Lots of powerful cards. I know it's shaking up constructed and eternal formats in ways that people are at least interested in. I'm not going to say happy about, but definitely definitely following. So definitely a lot of stuff for us to, uh, to unpack here. Yeah, absolutely. So we have nearly 150 respondents. And you know, we're recording a little bit in advance of when we close the survey, so that might change a little bit, but about 150, and the median respondent is testing six cards with an average rating of almost eight. So they're testing a fair bit of cards, a half dozen or so, and rating them fairly highly. So I agree, this is a really popular set, it seems, especially compensating for the fact that we probably don't have as many respondents as usual thanks to the Reddit strike. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Usually we get a lot more responses for the main sort of premiere sets, you know, the things that are standard legal, and then not so much for supplemental sets, with the exception of Modern Horizons 2, I think, which was actually, I think, the survey that we got the most responses to, and people were really excited about that for mm -hmm. Cube. And I wonder if this set, you know, there are other factors here that are influencing the data, but I wonder if this almost falls closer to the Modern Horizons than it does a lot of, like, the Commander products and things like that. How do you mean? You mean just because it's not a regular standard set? Right, right, right. In terms of just yes. being like, how popular is this for a non-standard set for cube players? I think very popular. Honestly, I had totally forgot it wasn't a standard set until you just said that, because I don't follow standard. Yeah, it isn't, right? Like, it, it's modern legal, but not standard, correct? Yes, because Great. otherwise standard would be just completely overrun with all these cards. Oh, yeah, good point, good point. Uh, because they are definitely pushed for, for standard standards. Oh, look what I did there. That was fun. Neat. Yeah, we, we have fun on this Words. show. We're going to talk about the top eight cards on the survey, but I think we have some some honorable mentions first. Maybe we should we should run down. Where do you want to start with those, Parker? So I think we should start with a mechanic, which is the only brand new mechanic to Lord of the Rings, but doesn't appear in the top eight or so most popular cards on the survey, and that is Ring Temptation, the most tested card that references the ring and by that I mean the ring tempts you or whatever, is Samwise the Stouthearted, which is tested by under 15% of our respondents, average rating of 6.7. So I'll just read its text. Samwise the Stouthearted, one in a white for a legendary creature, halfling peasant. It's a 2-1 flash, and when it enters the battlefield, choose up to one target permanent card in your graveyard that was put there from the battlefield this turn. Return it to your hand, then the ring tempts you. Yeah, Ring Temptation. It is not very well tested. Not only that, but we have an optional write-in question on like just an empty text box in our survey submissions, and a lot of people used that opportunity to tell us how much they disliked this mechanic. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's everybody, right? Like it's it's obviously being tested and pretty highly rated by a lot of people, but the people who are vocal about it said this thing isn't getting within a mile of my cube, Ring Temptation. I'm categorically excluding it. I don't believe that at a high density, this is powerful enough to justify the complexity. I'm surprised that the one card we see highest is not that black card that's basically like a Phyrexian Arena, but the ring tempts you every time instead of, what is it? I believe that's Call of the Ring. Yeah, I can't even 
find that one on the survey here. It looks like it's going to be really low. That one is the one Ring Temptation card that read to me like it worked well in isolation because it, on its own text, allowed the Ring to tempt you multiple times. So you're just allowing yourself to tick all the way up those four levels of the Ring without requiring any other input. But I guess people just aren't into that card in general, so they're not getting anywhere near it. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, because that card, it's tested by almost 6% of our respondents, and it has an average rating of 7.5 out of 10. So, you know, it's a card, it's here, but it's interesting that it is both, the thing that is most self-contained, like it just fuels itself, like you're saying, it actually like is meaningful that you're going to be tempted multiple times. But it's also, I think, the card that I would expect only people that are really committing and putting a lot of cards that care about this mechanic in their cube, because... It just feels like it's it's that mechanic at a loud volume. Whereas something like Samwise the Stouthearted is a pretty interesting card design. I mean, it's kind of like a lot of these I like white the design, cards save seen, for the ring temps you line. Yeah, these like brought back type effects that save a thing that died this turn. Uh, and it's kind of like White's twist on a Snapcaster Mage. It's like obviously very different, but it has a similar feel. It's really nice. Um, that one can also just get you a fetch land too. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I do wonder also how much that card would be tested differently if it didn't have this mechanic on it. There's maybe three complaints. One is that the ring isn't actually powerful. The second is that the tracking is really onerous um, because this is a persistent resource and you'll still have a ring emblem even if your ring bearer dies. And then I think the third is that the play patterns aren't good or that it's like too powerful maybe. And I don't know. I, I have a little bit of a soapbox about this because... I think that the Ring Temptation is the best designed persistent mechanic that Wizards has ever made. Comparing I to Daybound, Nightbound, comparing to the Initiative oh boy, and to I the Monarch. Daybound, Nightbound, that was, oof, not for me. Right. See, Daybound, Nightbound, a tracking nightmare, right? Because you're, you know, your werewolf dies and you still have to track this persistent resource. It's not even a resource. It's just like a state of the game. You have to track it every upkeep for the rest of the game, just in case somebody has a reanimator in case your opponent has one. And more and importantly, you, day bound, night bound, the, it will flip based on what you're doing in the game without a, drawing another card right. that cares about day bound, night bound. Whereas right. technically you would have to you know, maintain your state of the ring because if you did draw some sort of reanimation effect to get back that card that tempted you the first time or whatever, now you're going to have to know, remember what level you were at. But at least that level is not changing based on the game. Every single as turn. It, yeah, as it goes on, yeah. yeah. So I think it's actually much less onerous to track, not to mention when you have a ring bearer in play, it actually remembers itself because that little reminder card for the ring, you just slip it under your creature yep. like you would an aura or an equipment and you just uncover whatever line is relevant. So I think it's really not onerous to track in the same way that Daybound Nightbound is. And in terms of its power level, Obviously, the comparison is to Initiative and the Monarch, which were designed not for standard, and, and they were also one designed... On one. Exactly. And so they're balanced on power level partly around the assumption that you'll have multiple opponents. And if that assumption isn't met, then they get kind of cracked, right? Mm -hmm. Not only that, but once you gain Initiative or the Monarch in 1v1, when I'm at parity in cube and then I resolve a Palace Jailer or a White Plume Adventurer... I'm actually not attacking with those, even though the mechanic is designed to encourage attacking in multiplayer. In 1v1, I'm like, I want to protect this like thing that's giving me persistent recurring advantage, and so I'm going to block. Right. And it's actually defeating the purpose of the mechanic. By yep. contrast, the ring 
I think it scales better in 1v1 anyways, but it also, every level of its payoff requires and incentivizes attacking in new ways, right? The first level gives skulk, and skulk is meaningless unless you're entering combat as the attacker. And every level is like that. Yeah. And so I think that's really nice that the ring actually follows through on the promise of incentivizing combat and making small creatures more relevant in a different way where they might have been outclassed by your opponent's 4-4, but now the skulk makes it better or whatever. So I really think that the kind of absolutist takes that we saw on the survey about because it's outside the game and because it's persistent, I'm not testing it. I think those were, you know, it's it's preview season, so nobody knows what it's like, but I do think it's worth giving this mechanic a second look if those are your concerns about the ring temptation. Yeah, you know, I think that I'm definitely in that camp where having played with Daybound, Nightbound, and, you know, the Initiative, and Monarch, and all these things... And none of those things in your cube, just in, like, none pre-release of those, or whatever. Right, right, right. And, and all of those things, I think, are fine when you're playing an environment with just that one thing. Like, they're designed in environments that work, but when you put a bunch of them in one cube, things get really... Like, it, it feels like the joke version of Magic. You know, there's a couple <laughs> funny videos on YouTube of, like, here's what uh, playing a game of Magic looks like to an outsider. Yeah, they're so funny. <laughs> they're so funny. <laughs> definitely don't feel haunted by them <laughs> um no this face down one's not manifested it's foretold oh right it should be daytime so that means this one needs to be back on the other side now and i'm gonna pay two to play this morph creature this is another face down one it's also a two two but later on i can turn it face up if i'd like on my next turn i'm gonna play this creature and when it enters the battlefield i venture into the dungeon so I'm going to use this extra card here to show me walking through this dungeon, and we need to track this for the rest of the game as well. And I'm also going to play this creature, which helps me take the initiative, so that means I'm going to move forward into the dungeon. However, the initiative is going to change control between each of us as the game progresses, and each time this changes ownership, and also at the beginning of your upkeep, you move forward in the dungeon, so you have to keep track of that for the rest of the game. However, if you're not already in a dungeon, you have to start this particular dungeon. Then I'm going to mutate this creature on top of this creature, and that means that they're kind of turned into one creature, but not really because it has the power and toughness as one of them, but also it has the ability of both of them. And I'm going to play this enchantment that lets me exile a card face down underneath it. So this face down card is an exile, however, it's not foretold and it's also not on an adventure. Wait, is it day or night right now? I can't remember. But if we hadn't seen a lot of those other mechanics, if this was the first time I was seeing a mechanic that had this like outside the game helper card, I would probably be much more into it. So it's definitely like just a taste issue that I'm definitely influenced by it. All right. So Parker, how many of these are you testing then? Put your money where your mouth is. I'm testing something like six or seven. Okay, respect. You did put your money where your mouth is. I respect that. Yeah, and you know, this is also the kind of thing where the more you test, the less onerous the complexity is. Like even learning it for the first time or your opponent casts one or whatever, now you know how your own works or you know how it works in match two or whatever. But so, wait a minute, what was the most recent mechanic a couple sets ago that Anthony and I were low on and then you came on that every episode and you were like, oh, battles, battles. How many battles are still in your cube, Parker? A bunch of them. Still? Okay. Yeah. All right, all right, all You right. know, in fairness, uh, right now I'm in a period where I'm adding a bunch of cards to my, you know, eternal cube and I'm not testing it a lot because... I have a different cube that's going to KubeCon, and so that's the one that needs testing. Yeah, get that, get that Pulp Nouveau test sessions in. That's right. So, you know, the cube that's appropriate for ring tempting that I own is not the cube that I'm testing right now very heavily. But, you know, c'est la vie. I respect your commitment to standing by your, uh, your ideas. And yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I do think this is the best persistent 
game mechanic that we've seen them design. Uh, I think it's no mistake that it is, because I do think this set was designed with a lot of limited in mind, and you know, limited is much closer to Cube's play patterns than multiplayer is. Let's talk about a multiplayer Cube, of course. So yeah, I think this is by far the best one. I am a little surprised. I did expect Call of the Ring to be a little higher. I think this card is also quite powerful. I saw at least Thraben Yu was brewing with this in Legacy and thought maybe there was even maybe viable there, which is which is surprising. But I mean, a two mana Phyrexian Arena that has other upside and it's you know not as good as Phyrexian Arena because if you don't have a creature, you can't draw a card and also cost two life instead of one. But you know, it's it's a two mana card advantage engine that has all the additional upside of all of the rules text on the ring. I think it's quite good. So maybe that's when we'll see actually go up in playtesting over time. Who knows? Something else that's really surprising about this mechanic is the number one, not in terms of testers, but in terms of actual rating that players gave it, number one card is Golem's Bite, which includes this mechanic. So it's got a nine out of 10 rating, which is kind of insane that everybody who's testing this is like, this is a slam dunk, this is going to be forever. This is one mana for an instant, target creature gets minus two, minus two until end of turn, and then has four mana exile from your graveyard, the ring tempts you, which you can only activate as a sorcery. So I don't know, do you have any theories about why this is so highly rated? Well, I mean, that one, I think, for the reasons we always talk about, like, it's a very known quantity. If you True. want a disfigure yeah. with upside, then you probably know whether or not you're willing to stomach this mechanic or not. I've been wanting a disfigure with upside for years and years and years, but I am not willing to stomach the uh, the extra complexity of the ring temptation. So uh, even though I've been wanting that for a long time, this is not for me. But if I had slightly different preferences as a cube designer, then I would be one of those people all over this card because... It is a very known quantity. It's, you know, we know what Disfigure does. So the question is, do you want slightly better Disfigure at the cost of all this complexity? And it's actually not the only kind of known quantity that adds Ring Temptation. We have a cantrip that tempts, which mm -hmm. is, I think, Birthday Escape, which is apropos for today. We also have, I think, Ranger's Firebrand, which is a shock variant. Well, it's not technically shock. It's a it's a sorcery, but... Yeah, close it, enough. Two damage for a single red mana and you get a temptation as a bonus. So there's a lot of bread and butter effects here that are very close to the best we've ever gotten in terms of power level. So I don't think power level is the issue here. I think it's a question of density, whether you actually want to make six or seven swaps to make this happen at a good density or whatever. I like it. I, I, don't, I don't really understand why there was such a visceral reaction except for the knowledge that we've already been burned by initiative in the Monarch very recently. Well, look, I mean, I agree with you in all the ways, like I said, but I also totally get not wanting to play them because I'm in that camp. I agree with everything you said, but still don't want to introduce this complexity. It's really not a, like, the mechanic is designed poorly for zero-sum one-on-one magic, which is, I think, the case with a lot of these other mechanics. The Monarch and Initiative, I think, just are mistakes in one-on-one, -on -one, frankly. And I guess Daybound Nightbound is an example of one that I just think is... There's some implementation details that are just, like, logistically kind of frustrating. Yeah, it really adds a lot of complexity to a game of magic if you only have a couple cards that care about it. Here, it's, it's really just that complexity thing. It's like, yeah, I mean, are a couple of these cards interesting to me? Sure. Are they interesting enough to warrant adding this whole nother thing? No. And it's possible that they could have made a card that was interesting enough. I'm not saying this mechanic is ruled out entirely based on its design, regardless of the cards it's printed on. They could have printed a card that would have gotten there for me in terms of playing a role in my cube I've been wanting to fill for a while or doing something really interesting or compelling. But but no, for the most part, they're, like we said, 
regular cards with this little upside tacked on. And for me, it's just not worth adding that additional complexity. So I, I see both sides. I, I agree with everything you said, Parker, but also I totally get why people are like, you know, out the gate just being like, yeah, I'm not going to touch this. Yeah, yeah fair I mean, enough. Say you put Golem's Bite in your cube is it would literally you put Golem's Bite in your cube. It would. OK, uh, <laughs> it would literally just be a disfigure with uh, four mana exile from your graveyard. Give a creature skulk. Right. Yep. It wouldn't do anything else. And, that's, and, and even if it was that without the extra complexity of like if it was written like that. Right. I'm still not actually sure I'd be on it because. OK, skulk is kind of a weird keyword, but just like if it just did exact or what written what it did in the most clean way, it would feel a lot more, a lot less complex than the fact that like when you see this, you do have to think, oh, OK, what does that do again? Like it's not all written on this card. If there are multiple copies of this or if there happen to be some other cards in this environment, which maybe I'm drafting a cube for the first time, I don't know, then it's going to behave differently than if it just said grant creature keyword. So, I mean, it's it's complexity in the sense that just it's not written in the cleanest way it could be in a lot of contexts, which is something that I definitely prioritize for my cube. Right, but what I'm saying is that even if it was written without all that complexity, four mana gave a thing, Skulk and Sorcery Speed, I still don't even think that's good enough for me to be that excited about Disfigure Plus, because it's still more complexity. That's a lot of text and like thinking to put on a card that how often is four mana Sorcery Speed give something Skulk actually going to matter in my okay. cube? I'm... Maybe this is a little off topic, but I'm curious about what the disfigure with upside that you want looks like. Uh, something clean and simple. I don't know. I'll know when I see it. But, okay, okay. But this is a really uh, fringe upside, I guess, or really like low value upside. If you only have exactly one example of this card in your cube, that's where I stand on this. I, I still feel the same way I did when we talked about it initially. And uh, I agree with Parker, though. I think that if you entirely wrote it off just without even thinking about it that hard, I do think this is the best designed version of this mechanic, which I think I said in our episode too, that this is my favorite version of this outside of the game persistent emblem style mechanic. I agree. There are situations where you have to weigh complexity versus what it's bringing to the cube. One reason I'm able to run, you know, 15 battles and seven ring temptation cards is that I do not run foretell or mutate or, you know, like I limit complexity in other ways in order to be able to make these trade-offs. So I'm with you there. I think we have to talk about our most tested card that's a common and eligible for popper cubes, which is Rally at the Hornburg. That's uh, one in a red for a sorcery. Create two one one white human soldier creature tokens. Humans you control gain haste until end of turn. It's tested by almost a fifth of our respondents with an average rating of 6.8. You know, we've seen Raise the Alarm. We've seen that Forbidden Friendship, I think it's called, from Ikoria that made a 1-1 and a 1-1 with haste. This is another variation on that theme. I think it's pretty functional. I think it's significantly more powerful than Dragon Fodder or... Krenko's you know, Command. Yeah, the one that doesn't give haste. I like this card. I think this card's really cool. I, I'm a big fan of efficient one-shot haste cards uh, in the form of like something like this or if you look at like uh crap what's the goblin with kicker that gives everything plus one plus so in haste goblin bushwhacker um stuff like that and uh or there's also the four mana boros sorcery that does a similar thing but it also pumps things temporarily for the end, end of turn it gives two 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 tokens pumps things and also gives everything haste i think it's really cool and a really fun dynamic in limited style games where you basically can like sandbag a threat for a little bit and so you can double spell your 
surprising new threat plus the thing it gives it haste i think it's uh, it's really fun i've played with this kind of mechanic a lot in battle boxes and really enjoyed it and uh, i think it'll be really great in popper cubes i think this card's really cool i also want to talk briefly about our land cycling cards which did rank quite highly so we see the troll of kazad doom doom you, do you know how to pronounce these things parker you're a bigger lord of the rings fan than anthony or i okay so despite the fact that i've gone by land of mordor on a bunch of social media I picked that username in seventh grade, like right after I finished reading Fellowship. And then I got into Two Towers and was like, didn't finish that one at the time and didn't finish it until I was in college. So I'm not actually a Lord of the Rings fan in the same way that I am Magic or Star Wars or whatever. But I think it's Kazad Doom. I don't know. So this Black Troll and Lorien revealed the blue sorcery that draws three cards and has island cycling for one. Uh, these are the two highest tested cards from this basic land cycling cycle that was quite a sentence these cards did test pretty highly i think people actually are maybe recognizing how powerful these cards potentially are generous ent is not far behind nor is eagles of the north you just gotta go a little further down before you find oliphant which is a bummer that one's kind of cool but these cards are all getting seeing quite a bit of testing and are quite popular i had a couple people suggest lorian revealed to me for my cube specifically because i do like the one mana cantrip so much and the fact that this is a one mana cantrip to go find your typed dual land in your like control deck or whatever, and then also just a five mana draw three late in the game. I think it does compare favorably to things like Boon of the Wish Giver, which I have previously been on and enjoyed. You know, oftentimes when you're cycling a card like Boon of the Wish Giver or Hieroglyphic Illumination, you're cycling it to find your land because if you had land, you would just play your land and then wait to cast the spell later on. And so the fact that this always finds your land and also finds your typed land, I think does make it quite good. So I could see testing this in the future at some point. The reason I eventually cut Boon of the Wishgiver and Hieroglyphic Illumination was not because the play patterns of the cards weren't good. I actually really liked how they played. It was because I really wanted the cycling mode to trigger all of my spells matter stuff. I yeah. have so much things in my cube that care about casting spells, and it just felt like a bummer to put any of those cards in your deck with your Sprite Dragon and your Young Pyromancer and your whatever because you just weren't going to get triggers most of the time when you when you played those cards. So I feel kind of similar about Lorian Revealed, but I do think the cards are really good and they are pretty popular. So uh, yeah, looking at like 16% testing rate for the Troll and Lorian Revealed, 15 for Generous Ent, and then Eagles of the North and Oliphant not too far behind. So yeah, I think the cycle is has been recognized for its power. I think they're really powerful for popper. Like if if you're only playing commons or or maybe commons and uncommons, I think these are even better on rate. And then I also think there's applications. I mean, in modern, we're seeing generous hint give a big boost to living end decks, like reanimation style or combo decks or cards that want things to be in your graveyard. These will bend themselves. They'll give you some value as they go to the graveyard, and then you'll be able to exploit those with reanimate or exhume or whatever. These all seem really good in Living End. I don't know that deck inside and out in Modern, but I know the fact that uh, these cycle specifically for lands and therefore don't trigger drawing a card is kind of relevant, especially as Orcish Bowmasters becomes a card that is more popular. I heard people talking specifically about how good that card was against Living End currently because a lot of Living End cyclers just draw a card now because you're drawing your way into your Cascade cards. So... It's probably pretty interesting to decide the breakdown of these basic land cyclers, which help you hit your mana, but don't help you find your Violent Outburst or whatever Cascade spells you're using, versus 
playing the cards that actually draw you a card, but are worse against the hate like Orcish Bowmasters and... Shall we dive into the top eight then, gentlemen? Let's do it. All right, I'll start with uh, number eight. It is the One Ring. This is four mana for a legendary artifact. It has indestructible, and when the One Ring enters the battlefield, if you cast it, you gain protection from everything until your next turn. At the beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life for each burden counter on the One Ring, and you can tap it, put a burden counter on it, and draw a card for each burden counter on the One Ring. This is being tested by 18% of our respondents with an overall rating of 7.5, which is quite a high rating. This card, I think, is uh, is proving to be really, really powerful. More powerful than people initially thought in Constructed Magic. We see it played all over the place in Modern, quite a few places in Legacy, even showing up a little bit in Vintage, uh, because that Enter the Battlefield trigger, when you cast it, is actually really, really good. It's a kind of a time walk for some aspects of a turn. You know, it lets your opponent keep doing their thing, but you get protection from everything for a turn, which is quite a bit better than a fog, I would say, generally speaking. Yeah, I mean, a fog is good because you can sort of surprise people and they're like potentially tapped out when they don't expect to be. But yeah, I mean, this stops burn. It stops combos from going off. It stops all kinds of stuff. It stops hand hate. It stops Absolutely, a lot yeah. of things. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think actually in that sense kind of a perfect design in that it seemed kind of innocuous. It was like, oh, whatever, this four-mana artifact, and then it turns out is pretty powerful. I know I was a little bit critical about some of the design of this set last week, but this is an area where I think they pretty succeeded in, in designing something I like that the is design evocative of, of it, yeah. uh, and the play pattern sort of fit with that. I think this card is going to be one of the ones, when we look back on this set retrospectively, more people are going to be playing it than uh, are testing it currently. Because I think this card is going to continue to make waves in Constructed Magic. And I think people kind of are sleeping on it and will be more interested in this card than they thought they were going to be. What was the reason I did this? At some point, I went through and looked at all of the different fog effects we had for some reason. I forget what I was doing this for. Some deck <laughs> oh, yeah, or your, article. Oh, yeah, your fog cube. <laughs> some deck or some article. I can't remember. But I noticed that they had never, ever printed a cantripping fog. Like, just fog draw a card, which... Sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that would be a really good card, because uh, it's becoming a, a larger percentage of a time walk with every every little thing you add to it. I think this has a decent percent of a, a time walk strapped to it, right? Like, you're going to get to negate a large portion of your opponent's next turn and draw one to three cards before they get to untap again. And that's before you take into account a constructed people are untapping it. People are untapping it to draw a bunch of cards that can draw into their next copy of the ring so they can play it and get protection again from the next turn. Like, they kind of chains together in multiples very well, which is the one thing I will say I think doesn't work so well with the flavor, the fact that this is so good in multiples, and the whole point is that it's the one ring. I think it'd be cool if they brought back the original legendary rule for the... Did I say this on the last episode, or did I just talk, think about saying this in the last episode? I don't episode? think you said it. I think it'd be so cool if they had brought back the original interpretation of Legendary for the One Ring and said you could only play one copy of this card in your deck and then made it even better. That would have been cool. <laughs> that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, I think this card... I mean, this is not a card I'm interested in. This is like a quintessentially big game card, right? Like, the turn that you oh, are... Oh, no. What? Oh, I just can't believe we're here again. Well, it's just, it is. <laughs> Ticking off your bingo card. It, it yep. draws tons of cards, and it's better the bigger the board state is, right? Like, the more of your opponent has in play, the more that that one turn of protection from everything is going to grant you value. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a much better card in big games, which it makes it really good in multiplayer. It makes it good in a lot of ways. So, uh, so yeah, I think the card is cool. It's still not for me, for sure. 
but I kind of think more people are going to be interested in playing this card as time goes on, is my my prediction. Yeah, it's interesting how this doesn't scale linearly with the, the power level or speed or, you know, how broken an environment is. In the really powerful, fast, broken environments, this is really good because taking that one turn off is going to be extremely powerful. A turn is a lot. In, for example, my main cube, which is pretty low power, plays a lot more like limited, it's going to be... I expect kind of okay. It's like, okay, you stopped my one attack, you stopped a couple blockers, but that like tempo advantage is not going to be as meaningful. And I don't love all the like, protection is not super straightforward to a lot of people, especially newer players. So it's definitely not something I'm looking for there. But yeah, I mean, that's just a weird thing about how it scales differently. I heard Artless Bread in the uh, Cube Talk Discord talking about how this card is actually pretty mid in Retail Limited. I haven't played this set at all. That's my expectation. But basically he was saying like, yeah, you take like, C plus commons over it, you know, early because it's just not that good, which I'm a little surprised by, and it feels like it should be a little better than that, but I do think that the better the environment, the better this card gets, because the more it's worth paying life to draw more cards, and the more that one turn of a super fog is yeah. uh, is really worth something. I mean, which, again, if we want to talk about, like, the mechanics lining with the flavor, you give it to some old hobbit, they can't really do that much with it, you <laughs> give it to a super powerful <laughs> wizard uh, in a super powerful wizard battle, they're gonna, you know, wreck face. Which brings me to my last point about this card. I mentioned on our personal cube inclusions episode that I'm not testing anything in the degenerate micro cube. And after more reflection, I actually think this is the one thing that maybe could make it there. Because I do have a lot of Artifact Matters themes. I This is seen playing Constructed Vintage because of Misha's Workshop, which I do have in the degenerate micro cube. And if you can figure out some way to sacrifice it every turn, you could just recurve this with Emery over and over again and then yeah. have protection from everything for the rest of the game. So... I think it might actually have a space there. Uh, I haven't given it too much thought. And right now, it's ridiculously expensive. And so I'm going to hold off a little bit until maybe the price goes down, question mark, or maybe it never will. Who's to say? I think it's a cool card. And overall, a really compelling design and more powerful than people gave it credit for initially. And, you know, it's, I think, worth mentioning that this is why we do a prospective survey. We wait, or like we, we publish this as the set is coming out, precisely because we want to capture people's first impressions. We don't really want a survey that just replicates the top eight of the most recent constructed tournament. We want to know what's exciting people, what is slipping under the radar. And I think the One Ring, it was not even rated this highly a week ago. I first drafted this article a week ago, and as the One Ring is making such a splash in constructed, it's already jumping up in these survey results just thanks to the latecomers. Yeah, to be honest, I kind of wish that, uh, you know, we were more on our game and had this out two weeks ago, because this is kind of late for our perspective, partially because we haven't had as many responses because the subreddit's been down, and also because we've just had a lot going on and haven't had time to, you know, otherwise promote the survey. But I agree with you, Parker. I think that this has probably just gotten more popular over the past couple of weeks as our sort of late answers have come in, and I'm more interested in capturing that initial response before people have that feedback from Constructed, which we're, we're getting a little bit of that crosstalk here, that little bit of that creeping into this, I think. Yeah, but, uh, you know, that's kind of the magical thing about pre-releases and prospective card evaluation like this is that we're all so bad at it. And Truly. that's kind of wonderful to see that replicated in these results to some extent. I had a fun, I'm so bad at card evaluation thing happen recently, which is that I put endurance in my cube, finally. <laughs> Because I've been against the Evoke Elementals for a while, but mostly because getting to free roll the Evoke mode feels pretty bad to me on most of them. But on Endurance, I feel like in my cube, as valuable as Grave Hit is, I don't have any like 
reanimator strategies going on. So you're really like, it's grave hate for value for the most part, not grave hate to stop a broken combo. And in that context, I don't imagine evoking endurance is almost ever going to come up, question mark, question mark. Like, by the time you really want to be exiling their graveyard, it's when they have, like, an Uro in there or something. And you should have the three mana for endurance. You just cast it and you get the trigger. So anyway, I'm playing endurance now. And I remember looking back on my Modern Horizons 2 survey, I was fairly high on all of the elementals except for endurance and now i'm playing only endurance and none of the other ones perfect i literally got it exactly wrong i was like i think these other ones are exciting and then i played with them a little bit and i was like these are actually not for me and turns out the one i wasn't that interested in is the one that i actually like long term so uh yeah card evaluation it's hard the card i'm most excited for with lord of the rings coming out is mind over matter Mind Over Matter is a 6-mana blue enchantment from Exodus that lets you discard a card to tap or untap a permanent. It used to be the center of a constructed combo deck with mana doublers and draw X spells, and still lives on as the center of a combo archetype in my 2007 Nostalgia Vintage Cube. However, Mind Over Matter's partner X spells have mostly been power crept out of modern-day vintage cubes, but with Lord of the Rings coming out, Mind Over Matter has a new best friend in the One Ring. The One Ring is at a power level to compete with modern vintage cube cards on its own, while also being a two-card combo with Mind Over Matter to draw all the cards in your deck and turn anything that isn't a win con into mana to cast whatever is. The One Ring makes an old favorite combo card playable again, and that's a great feeling. All right, coming in at number seven, we have Flowering of the White Tree. This is white, white for a legendary enchantment. It's a, it's an anthem. Legendary creatures you control get plus two, plus one, and have ward one. Non-legendary creatures you control get plus one, plus one. So it's a little, wording is a little bit confusing here, but it gives all of your creatures plus one, plus one. Your legendary creatures also get an extra bonus to their power and ward one. Uh, this is being tested by 20% of the people that respond to the survey with an average rating of 6.9. A huge improvement over a glorious anthem. Oh, yeah. Which is one white, white for just all your creatures get plus one, plus one. This gives you that minus a whole generic mana, and then you have the additional upside of legendary creatures getting additional power and the ward one is not nothing that really adds for up sure. i think yeah i'm curious if people are playing this specifically for the legend interaction my guess is no that this is just such a strict more powerful version of a lot of sort of anthems that we've seen that are you know restricted just to white creatures or there's uh the one that is for artifact creatures that tempered steel mm-hmm so yeah, I mean, I think this just is going to fit in a lot of cubes where white decks are just trying to go wide, and it's got this little extra rider, which I think is going to come up a lot because of just the the frequency that they're printing creatures with the super type legendary. I think people that are testing it are probably pretty excited about that legendary line, I would guess. The uh, testing rate, by the way, is like 21% of our respondents are testing it with a rating of 6.9. I think Anthony already mentioned that. I did that. say that. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well. It's okay. You don't listen. I'll just cut it. I... <laughs> Ouch. Just kidding. Maybe I won't put it in a deck because of the legendary creatures thing, but I would put it in a cube because of the legendary creatures thing. Because I, as a cube owner, want to see somebody draft legend matters, like every creature happens to be a legend or whatever. You know, these kind of wacky decks that we usually rely on Daniel to discover and uh-huh. draft. <laughs> this card promises a little bit of that, even though the floor is so high that it probably doesn't matter and that kind of like low downside low risk but high upside does seem pretty appealing how do you all feel about the play patterns of anthems in the year of our lord 2023 do you like an anthem in your cube or in limited style magic i haven't played one in five years or more like it's not something i usually think about as necessary to a white deck or something that I'm looking for in my cubes, but 
I did take a second look at this, and that that says something. I think they occupy a space that has gotten a lot more full in the past decade, which is to say, so like in my neoclassical cube, which is old border, anthems I think are reasonable, and I'm playing a couple right now, and I've been looking at them for more inclusion, and the reason I don't feel as drawn to them in more contemporary card design is because I think that they provide some utility that is also provided by vehicles, equipments, other maybe more flexible or dynamic game pieces that are also in a similar space. Of By that, I mean that they are cards that require you to have creatures in play to be good, and they themselves are not creatures, which means they are insulated from board wipes and some removal. And there's a certain amount of those you can include, I think, in your average aggro deck, given that your aggro deck only functions if it has a lot of cheap creatures in play, basically. You can't have many of these kinds of effects because you eventually get to a point where you just draw nothing but flowering of the first trees and vehicles and equipments and your deck doesn't function anymore. But yeah, so I think the reason that this, I mean, this card is certainly really powerful. The reason it didn't jump off the page to me is that I immediately thought about, okay, well, here's my aggro decks. I do only have a couple slots, I think, for smugglers, copters, or good equipments, or whatever. And do I want those instead to be an anthem or do I actually like the play patterns of these vehicles and equipment more and for me it was that I think I do like the play patterns of the new card types as opposed to just a straight up anthem yeah I think that's really fair yeah I don't know I don't have an answer to that right now I feel like it's it's one of the most context dependent types of cards because it will just like do nothing on a lot of board states you really want to play into it and it's going to work in some decks it's going to work really poorly in some matchups if your opponent has the right removal to keep your creatures off the board so it just is a card that does nothing in some contexts it's also going to be this like weird risky card where if somebody has removal for enchantments with flash or at instant speed this can really blow you out if you get your anthem destroyed mid-combat so i don't know i I have a really hard time evaluating it in a vacuum you know what kind of games it's really good in anthony i i'm I'm not going to say it Big games. All right, bingo. (laughs) Anthony said context earlier, so we have a bingo. Oh, we still have to say long tail. Oh, bingo. Extra bingo. That's the free space. (laughs) All right, I think I'd just better move on to the next card, which is Anduril Flame of the West. It's three mana for a legendary equipment. Equipped creature gets plus three, plus one. And whenever equipped creature attacks, create two tapped 1-1 white spirit creature tokens with flying. But if that creature's legendary, instead, those tokens are tapped in attacking. And it has an equip cost of two, tested by 22% of our respondents with an average ranking of 6.3%. It's kind of like a sword of X and Y, but not. I think y'all did a good job of discussing this card's power level in the last episode. I don't really have much to add. It's, you know, it's a mid-rangey kind of equipment. It can be top-end in an aggro deck. It fuels itself. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, I think that's a big deal about this card is if you play this on turn five and can immediately equip an attack, it's giving you more creatures. So in that specific context of playing it there, it's going to be really easy not to have it fail, if that makes sense. Whereas a lot of other swords, if you equip an attack once, that's great, but if your creature gets removed, then you're kind of out of gas. You can't really keep using it, so I think that's going to make it appealing to a lot of players. And the fact that it works well with this anthem we have here, I think is not irrelevant, that there are just a lot of cards that make random tokens, and they kind of fuel themselves, and a lot of people are interested in that kind of gameplay. Worth noting, this is the lowest rated among our top eight here, 
and also the lowest rated for quite a while. If I keep scrolling down this list until we get to something that's lower rated, we have to get all the way down to Palantir of Orthonk. That can't be how it's pronounced. That sounds too ridiculous. <laughs> and that's uh, that's a solid, you know, dozen or more cards further down the list. So people are testing this, but they are a little bit tepid about how likely it is to stick around. And that's, that's how I feel about it in my own list for sure. You know, I'm testing it, but I've definitely done some like test drafts since putting it in my cube and... Just looking at it, I'm just like, ah, this feels like the card I want to cut most from this list. It's like it's it's risk. It's really risky, and I think it really takes uh, the right kind of mindset to want to invest all the mana into this card. And then, again, the question that I asked when we talked about it in our personal cube inclusions episode is like, when it works, is it fun? Like, is it fun to simply equip a spirit every turn and keep attacking and making more spirits to chump block to keep you alive so you can keep making more spirits? I don't know. Haven't gotten to do it yet, so. We'll see. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is like whether this is fun and if it's fun, is the investment on this card, does that lead to good play patterns or does it lead to feel bads or does it lead to people wanting to cut it from their decks? I'm always trying to cut anything that costs more than two mana though, so maybe I'm not a good test case. Yeah, love to cut the most expensive card in my deck. All right, next up, the fifth most popular card from Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle Earth is Flame of Anor. This is one blue-red for an instant. Choose one. If you control a wizard as you cast the spell, you may choose two instead. And the modes are target player draws two cards. Hey, targeted card draw. We didn't talk about that, actually, in the uh, personal cube inclusions episode. Good point. Destroy target artifact. And Flame of Anor deals five damage to target creature. This is being tested by the exact same number of people as Anduril Flame of the West, 22.3%, with a high rating of 6.6. Another card making some waves and constructed. I was uh, sent a merfolk list in modern that was playing red only for flame of anor because basically every merfolk is also a wizard every merfolk that matters pretty that much is, is also a wizard. i have a wizard commander deck and it's got a weird number of merfolk in there yeah and uh this deck was playing red only for flame of anor and uh i think five owed a, a league with it so wow. i didn't get to play this in the one draft i've done in my cube since this was added but it would have been good in my deck so yeah i don't know i'm still I'm still in this space where I don't know how much I actually like this card and I'm going to enjoy casting it, but I still think it's quite powerful. I think this is going to be a really fun card because I think this is powerful in a way that it's going to make it into a lot of cubes that don't typically care about tribal outside of maybe humans. And I think people are just going to have a great time being like, oh, hell, that's that's a wizard. This is going to be great. And, and it, it is it delivers when you have that. Yeah. If you have a wizard. I mean, like, great, 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 great. Really great. That's, I think it's also good if you don't, right? Like, just three mana yeah, red-blue murder is uh, it's pretty great. And I do, I agree with Anthony. Like, this is a flowering of the white tree situation where maybe you don't control many wizards throughout a draft night, but this is the kind of card that gets you thinking. And maybe you play an extra changeling or whatever to incidentally turn this on. Or maybe you play... Uh, Seagate Stormcaller over, you know, some monk or whatever, so that you can have a little extra upside. I think this will cause a lot of deck building and draft branching of decisions relative to how necessary the wizard actually is to its power level. You know, like the wizard won't matter often, but people will treat it like it will and like they're building their whole deck around this. And honestly, I think Cube could use a little more of that. This is really cool. I can't tell you why, but sometimes I really like those <laughs> long tail interactions of cards like this. And sometimes I really don't. Like, sometimes it just feels like a random reward, right? Like, 
realistically, can you actually draft around this wizard thing, or are you just going to put this card in every deck that can cast blue-red and then sometimes just get lucky and have a wizard in play and have this card be way better? And I don't know where I stand on this one. I think it's like somewhere in between. Like, yeah, it's cool if you actually do make draft decisions based around it, but I'm not sure it's strategically correct to. So, yeah, I'm going to see how this one lands with me personally. But people are definitely excited about it, and it makes sense that they are because, uh, yeah, it's got a high ceiling and a compelling set of modes here. I mean, drawing two, five damage to a creature is very close to a murder, like you said, Parker. It's basically a murder in my own environment. And then it's always nice, I think, to have some abilities to destroy artifacts and enchantments. This one only destroys artifacts. Just kind of snuck in places where you don't have to like commit whole picks to disenchants or whatever, but you get access to it in case your opponent does play uh, Umazawa's GTA or Smuggler's Copter or something. You do get to blow it up with Flame of Anor, so... All right, let's move on to Delighted Halfling. This is one green for a 1-2 creature halfling citizen. It has tap to add a colorless mana to your mana pool. It also has tap to add one mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast legendary spells, and that spell cannot be countered. So this is going to cast all of your legendary creatures. It's also going to cast all of your planeswalkers, which I think is probably where it's going to have the biggest impact. Hey, people in Legacy are casting turn two to fairy time revelers that can't be countered with this, so that's yeah. pretty cool in a format with tons of counter magic <laughs> it's this card is really funny to me where i feel like it's it's going to fit well in a couple different contexts one of them is going to be cubes that are playing really powerful stuff and are going to like ramp out their planeswalkers in a scary way and there is a lot of counter magic so that uh, preventing countering is really relevant and then i can also see it in a lot of more thematic decks that are just like let's play a bunch of legendary creatures let's play a bunch of multicolored spells things like that boy you know, there's that legendary theme of this set is really shining through. And this is one more example where in cube, it's singleton. Maybe you can't know that you're going to cast a turn two to fairy and a turn three Omnath or whatever. But the promise of that ceiling is really enticing. And I would put, you know, an extra legend in my deck just to make this more relevant, I think. And I, I, I'm not the only one who would, I think. That kind of like free upside is is really nice i think yeah and this is being tested by 32 percent, almost a third of the people that responded to our survey and has a rating of 7.7 this one does not spark joy for me and it was at first kind of hard for me to put words as to why somebody on the cube.discord was asking me about supreme verdict in my cube and i was making the case for how valuable the cannot be countered line is in my environment where i do have a ton of counter magic and they pushed back saying like should Rafts be uncounterable. Like, should a deck that is playing a low to the ground, you know, like blue X tempo deck that's aggressive but has counter magic to help protect them, should that deck be punished? Should they, you know, not get to counter the wrath if they have counter magic up? In that case, I feel like in my environment, yes, I do think control decks should have access to a Supreme Verdict esque effect. And a big part of that is that in my environment, I think control decks are fighting uphill in a lot of regards. And so, giving them a little bit of an edge in terms of like, yeah, you know what, your four mana wrath actually can just resolve all the time. I think that's the thing that control decks, I'm not going to say need, but I want them to have access to in my environment. Here, the uncounterability rubs me the wrong way because I don't want, I think, the greedier three, four, five color decks in my cube to have access to uncounterable planeswalkers. I don't think those decks need the help or should be encouraged in my own environment personally. So here, the fact that it's, uh, you know, tapping for any color and has this upside of, oh, and also if you're casting this certain subset of spells, you're going to prevent your control opponent from doing anything about it. The combination of those two things 
has me off this card, even though I do, for years, I've notoriously been on a diverse set of, ma of mana dorks. I don't play any functionally identical mana dorks, and I haven't for, for a long, long time. And so giving me another one mana mana dork that for sure fits that description, uh, you'd think would be really appealing to me. And I, I get why it's appealing to 32% of our respondents, but the kind of deck this is good in is not one that I want having access to uncounterable threats is what it comes down to for me, I think. I think that's very reasonable. I uh, think you're a Grinch who doesn't like fun, but wow. I I respect your decision. All right, I think well, that you know what? You can have your own opinion, but it's my birthday, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll let you have your opinion Even for your Grinches birthday. Even Grinches have birthdays. So I think that brings us to our third most popular card from Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth. That card is Stern Scolding, a single blue mana for an instant counter-target creature spell with power or toughness, two or less. It's tested by 43.9% of our respondents with an average rating of 7.3. I think you did a good job of discussing it last week. This is a surprisingly flexible and robust counterspell. It hits a lot of threats. It's also eligible for peasant cubes, and I think that will no doubt boost the popularity of this card. I noticed that a lot of the cards hovering around 20 to 30% in our survey results are rares and mythics. So this one has the appeal of being really powerful in those eternal cubes that don't have rarity restrictions, but it's also a, I think, premium answer in rarity restricted formats. So the combination of those things gives this a lot of wide appeal. Yeah, the card's cool. I'm actually a little surprised to see it this high, just because I feel like, uh, you know, I'm a huge Spell Snare fan. I think this plays in a very similar space to Spell Snare. It's not exactly the same, obviously, but I would guess in the average cube, the number of hits that Stern Scolding has and the number of hits that Spell Snare have are actually probably kind of similar-ish. Spell Snare probably has a few less hits in most cubes, but... Hey yo, it's Andy here from the editing booth, crunching some numbers for you because you know I got you like that. So the Bun Magic Cube, 96 hits for Spell Snare, and Stern Scolding has 104 hits, so pretty much the same number. Regular Cube definitely tilts further in favor of Scolding with 145 hits for Spell Snare and 185 hits for Stern Scolding. And Parker's Ship of Theseus Cube, which is his eternal, more powerful cube, has 90 hits for Spell Snare and 97 hits for Stern Scolding. Maybe not perfect numbers, because the filters might not return the exact results, but pretty close in most instances except for the regular cube. I do want to note that a lot of the things that Scolding counters, you don't really care that much about countering, because you can just remove them without them accruing any additional value. It was like 60% of the targets in my own cube you could just remove, and it was exactly the same as Stern Scolding them. Whereas Spell Snare, the things it hits that Stern Scolding does not are mostly removal spells and stuff that uh, you really can't answer in any other way except by counter spells. So maybe give Spell Snare a try? question mark uh, spells are not a popular cube card and i often see people ask me why i bother including it and so i'd expected this to be lower but people are clearly pretty high on uh on this conditional small ball counter spell yeah I, i'm really high on it like i said last week so uh, i guess i'm glad other people are too but a little surprising to see it this high for me i will say the the fact that this flavor text is just a quote from lord of the rings it's not exceptional in this card file. There's a ton of that flavor text. And I think it really elevates the flavor and like overall immersion in the world of Lord of the Rings when you're playing this set in limited or whatever. And I think it really elevates kind of the whole holistic 
escapism or immersion from the game of magic. It's really cool to see that. Also, some people just want to be shamed by Gandalf. <laughs> shame yeah, me, I mean, Gandalf. Shame me. <laughs> He's being a little... Uh, I always thought that line was really mean. So I don't think it's Gandalf's best look, but here we are. Look, Gandalf was frustrated. We all, we all have moments. Even wizards have bad days, okay? A moment of weakness. And to be fair, this... <laughs> This moment did lead to Gandalf being uh, thrown into more or less hell, and uh, I'd be kind to, of pissed too. To be H, to yeah, BH, fight a ten ten foot demon or whatever. So yeah, I'd I'd be mad. All right, that brings us to our number two most popular card from Lord of the Rings: Tales of Middle Earth, and that is Orcish Bowmasters. One and a black for a 1-1 with flash. When Orcish Bowmasters enters the battlefield and whenever an opponent draws a card, except for the first one they draw on each of their draw steps, Orcish Bowmasters deals one damage to any target, then amass Orcs one. This card is being tested by 46% of our respondents, nearly half, with an average rating of 8, which is the second highest rating, I believe, across the entire survey. A very popular card. Anthony, you got to play with Orcish Bowmasters in the most recent draft of the Bun Magic Cube. How did it go? It was fine. All right. You heard it here first, folks. It was fine. It was less totally busted than I thought it would be, but yeah, it was it was fine. I'm very glad to hear that. I was hoping that it would be fine. <laughs> Great. Because <laughs> I, I really want to play with this card. I still really like the play patterns of it, and I hope it is not a big blowout a whole bunch in ways that people just get frustrated with it. So I'm glad to hear that. It doesn't sound like you completely ruined any of your opponent's days with it. You played it against me, and it was good. I had an answer for it, which was important. And then I was worried you were going to use Liliana to buy it back, and I was relieved when you didn't. So, yeah, I think it's a powerful card, but like we mentioned in the episode, hopefully the kind of card that in the right cube, there's enough counterplay to it that it's just another thing that demands some interaction, which, if you're like me, you love cheap cards that demand your opponent interact with them because that encourages the kind of games you're looking to to play. Yeah, I mean, this is, an, again, a card that I think is going to change wildly depending on context, and if you have sort of slow games where people are drawing a lot of cards, maybe don't have a lot of interaction, it's going to be pretty punishing in those matchups. But, you know, where I really wanted this card to perform and shine was against, like, low-to-the-ground red and white decks, and a lot of the ways that they generate card advantage is not through literally drawing cards, so it just didn't overrun those matches in the way I thought it would. And the blue decks that are doing a lot of that card draw that you can sort of uh, get with this also have more ways to just counter it, so it's Yeah, it's I was kind of... playing, like, a blue-red hyper-prowess deck, and I had tons of card draw, but I also had tons of cheap burn spells, and so I just knew that I had to answer Orcish Bowmasters, and I thought it led to a cool back and forth. But yeah, people are into it. The average rating of 8, which is very high, and it's it's not quite up there. You know, like we said, we have some 9, some 8.5, so it's maybe 8th or so in terms of the ranking, but still a card that people are very into. Oh yeah, I forgot I can sort by rank here. Oh yeah, you can click well, on, oh, click yeah. on yeah. I gotta jump in here. It turns out that like when you're sampling from small numbers of people, like if I'm the only person who submits a card and I rank it a 10, well, that's the highest average ranking. That's a good point. But you have to kind of threshold these things. So, so some I think, of these, we have a threshold, so the lowest is like 4%. Right, which is not um, very many people. I think there's a lot of noise in those numbers of low testers. You hear so what that? You're, you're we noise, need, people. We need you lots, are noise to us. No. <laughs> I think I think the message there is that we need a lot more people to fill out these surveys, because even though we definitely conclusively say these are the cards that most people are interested in, there's a lot more data we can get about the long tail of cards that are tested by a smaller number of people. 
Yeah, even yeah. though there are seven or so cards that have a higher rating, only one of them has a higher rating and more than 5% of our respondents testing it, which we'll get to shortly. So it's very safe to say I think this is, in many ways, the like second highest rated card in the set with statistically significant respondents. Fair. Do we read the text of the card? I did. Great. Now you're not listening. <laughs> I was looking. You. I was sorting the table. <laughs> God. Uh, last one, Anthony? Last one. Number one card tested by almost 60%. So this is a very, very popular card. Average rating of 8.4, which is kind of nuts. That's a really high rating. It's Reprieve. One in a white for an instant. It says Remand. In other Though words, not quite. No, it doesn't. return not target quite. spell to its owner's hand. Draw a card. So, so you can is... reprieve Supreme Verdict. You cannot remand Supreme Verdict. So At there last, are differences. Wizards has been on their journey to reimagine what the white section of the color pie is all about. They've decided it can have as much card draws at once, and now it's getting some counter spells. I did have a thought looking at this. Do you think people that are card designers at Wizards, I know we have actually a fair number of people in R&D that listen to this podcast. I wonder if it depresses them a little bit that they spent all this time designing all these cards and really what everyone just wanted was, was white <laughs> Everybody loses. I mean, <laughs> everyone goes crazy over the same card, yeah, but in yeah, white. But in different color. <laughs> I do totally get that. I mean, that's, that's the experience of doing anything creative. It's like, I spend hours and months working on like the cuban commander maps and they're like kind of big and complicated and difficult to explain and then somebody posts like i crossed out tapped on a on a guild gate and here's my new dual land and everybody loses their crap and they can't really get their head around yeah i mean people like the quick one-liners they like things that are very familiar with a small twist and so it makes sense that people are going to be excited about this and wizards we appreciate all the design work that you do that isn't these simple one-liners i thought you were going to go in the direction of are they disappointed to see the color pie evolving? And I will say this feels like a pretty appropriate evolution of counterspells. I think that it is very reasonable that they don't want counterspells in a lot of different colors because especially for newer players, counterspells can be super frustrating, like even more so than a removal spell. So much more than removal it's like, for most people. Mm-hmm. I didn't even get to cast my thing? You stopped me before I even started? Mm-hmm. It can be really, really frustrating. So the idea is like, okay, we're going to silo this off. If you're playing against somebody with blue in their deck, this is a thing you can anticipate. Otherwise, don't really worry about it. But this has the effect of you're getting your spell countered, but you still have the spell. You can still do it again. So It like it doesn't completely... literally have the word counter on it, which I'm not saying just to be pedantic, true. but I do think it's part of why it fits in the color pie because you really are just moving it between zones. Sure, you know? yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think it has that frustration because you're not just immediately losing your thing. It's just like, you can do it again later you still have that card yeah i mean this seems like a reasonable evolution of magic the gathering yeah it's got that white philosophy of like delay and kind of like bureaucratic red tape kind of Mm -hmm. thing it still achieves the same play pattern more or less as remand but does so in a flavorful way and i also think one reason that this is tested by so many people with such a high rating is yeah it's easier to evaluate we have a known antecedent in remand and this is just super easy to evaluate and if remand is good in your cube then this will be too we think now that is an interesting question which i don't have any good answers to but i do want to point out it's an interesting question i it's not solved but i think that's the logic during preview season at least is yeah i think i know how this will play it's very similar to something we've seen before And that's the pattern that we see in all of these prospective results. The well-known 
quantities that refer back to an earlier effect, those are always very well tested, especially if they're like strictly better in any way or if they compare very well to previous effects. I'm thinking of Consider as maybe one of the most highly tested cards of all time right. on our surveys. In some ways, a strictly better opt in air quotes, like not always better, but that's super easy to evaluate because we'd seen opt tearing up standard and pioneer for a while. And now we have a version that does even different things. So, and to that end, I was actually going to say that I was surprised reprieve wasn't higher. I mean, 58% is a lot of testers, but it was substantially lower than consider and some other cards we've had in the past. I think Usher of the Fallen was tested by more people even, and I don't think that many people are still on that card, frankly. But I did look up the actual playtest rates of Remand on Cube Cobra and was surprised to find it's only 15% of cubes, though I think that number takes into account a large number of empty cubes, which are maybe in the data set, which are throwing things off a little bit. But either way, maybe not as many cubes are playing Remand as I expected. Let me look up Consider right now as a comparison point. Yeah, I think that's just a great point overall, that Remand is a card that is well-beloved by certain cube players, and I think for a lot of people, it just isn't something that, that is super appealing. Okay, so Consider, only played in 9.5% of all cubes. Interesting, that's so, something to think about. So yeah, I guess I'm, I'm going back to being surprised that uh, Reprieve isn't being tested by even more people. So uh, maybe if you're not testing Reprieve, uh, throw it in the comments below. Uh, why, why, why not? Why is this card not appealing to you? Certainly not to suggest that uh, anybody should play a card in their cube. Obviously, we, uh, we don't feel that way at all. You should play whatever cards you like and uh, not any cards you don't like. But given that this card is so popular and Remand is so extremely popular, I guess I expected even more people to be into it. Well, you know, because this is a survey that's conducted before the set's release, we're naturally going to be sampling from the most committed, most, you know, like compulsively updating their cubes. The coolest people alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The coolest people with the least free time and the least bandwidth for magic. Those people are going to be the most common respondent. So maybe that's one reason that Reprieve has such a higher rate in our survey relative to all of Cube Cobra, just because like most of Cube Cobra hasn't updated their cubes for Lord of the Rings. Right. Yeah, like the people on this podcast who definitely update their cubes regularly <laughs> with every set. Some of us do, some of us do. But you know, I only had a couple cards to add. Oh, one last question about this card. Parker, how do you feel about this card in a deck that otherwise has very little to do with instant speed? Are you still happy to jam this in your average white weenie deck? even if uh, you have almost nothing else at instant speed? I think so. And that's because my white aggressive decks are low to the ground. They are able to empty their hand fairly quickly. And that is the phase when a well-timed board wipe or, you know, removal spell, fire covenant. Oh man, fire covenant is so good to reprieve. <laughs> Go ahead, pay yeah. all that life, chump. <laughs> Yeah. Is that, oh, part, that, of be, yeah, that part of the cost? Yeah, part of the cost. That would wow. be nutty. Wow. You know, like, I can see myself wanting to kind of slow roll my board development to play around a board wipe. In those situations, Reprieve could be really good. Buy myself another turn with my threatening board, and I don't have to commit more, you know, threats during that turn. I can, I can draw into more threats to build back up after the board wipe. So I think it will have tactical applications, even if most of my deck is sorcery speed. I'm still gonna play, you know, like Path to Exile and Lightning Helix and, and instant speed removal as much as I can get, more or less. So I don't think it's gonna be automatically telegraphed. 
And I think it'll be tactically useful, even if overall it might not match with most of what the deck is doing. Yeah, I'm definitely going to put this in my mono white decks when I get the chance. I still think that this is going to shine mostly in blue white decks. The first draft of my cube, it ended up in a blue white deck that had a lot of other counter spells too, which I think is going to be pretty typical for this card. I guess I'm responding to the, the really high praise that Ryan Overturf heaped on it in his set review for Lord of the Rings. And also, there's a, a new cube podcast on the block called Powerful Nothing that I listened to their set review. And they were talking about how Reprieve was, in their opinion, like an incredibly good first pick in like a power motivated, you know, legacy cube. I don't feel like it's that good at all. I think it's a fine card, but it's definitely not going to be the thing that makes me want to play mono white. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a strong player, but to me, not like a a giant bomb in uh, in a white deck. So that's just where I landed sure. on the card. I think it's good, but good in a very safe and incremental way, which is why I like Remand so much. I don't think Remand is a bomb, to be honest. I think it's a really cool incremental counterspell, uh, but not something that is a total blowout most of the time, especially in my cube where things are low curving. I will say that these cards do get a lot better, I think, in cubes that have more high mana value spells because they just get closer and closer to a time walk. If you dump six mana into a spell and you get it remanded or reprieved, then yeah, it's kind of a big blowout. Uh, in my cube, you're mostly getting your one or two mana thing countered, and you have to like change your sequencing because this incremental little thing happened. So yeah, I'm glad we finally got it. I, and you know, I will say that I agree; it's a smart evolution of the color pie. And if that's coming from me, and especially Anthony, then I think we can say pretty safely, good color pie evolution. Because uh, Anthony is uh, maybe the chief color pie Scrooge, and uh, the fact that this fits—we all we're all a Scrooge about something. We're all the Grinch about something. You know, you live long enough to see yourself become the Grinch. And uh, the fact that this works, I think, for both of us. And I have not seen anybody complaining about the color by implications of this. I feel like it's a good evolution for white, and uh, I welcome it. We got to talk about the commander set, at least briefly, folks, yeah. because there's definitely at least one card that people are really excited about. Should we talk about just that card? I mean, there's a pretty big gap between that card and the next most popular. That is a big gap, yeah. What, what do we think? Yeah, let's do. All right, we should talk about the most popular card. The most popular card from Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth Commander is fourth Aor Lingos? Is that how it's pronounced? <laughs> yeah, I also need It has an exclamation point at the end, so yeah, you should so you have, have been to pronounce more that correctly. Fourth Aor Lingos! Uh, this is X red white for a sorcery. Create X 2 2 red human knight creature tokens with trample and haste. Whenever one or more creatures you control deals combat damage to one or more players this turn, you become the monarch. This is being tested by 54% of our respondents with a rating of 8.3. I think sometimes we see this pattern of uh, people filling out the commander survey explicitly to say they're testing one card and i think maybe this was the case for a lot of people here a big gap between this and the second most popular card and a ridiculously powerful offering from the commander set here yeah i mean it's four mana for four four worth of power and toughness with trample haste plus you probably become the monarch plus it has the upside of you can cast it for more or less mana depending on the board state what surprises me is that we just talked about how people are not really into these extra paraphernalia mechanics the monarch is like pretty polarizing a lot of cube designers are not into it so i'm not totally sure how to resolve that with this except to say that a lot of people also i think don't really know what to do with their boros section in very powerful cubes and this is just a really powerful card well there's that there's also the fact that the commander survey is actually a different pool of respondents also true it's got some overlap but the venn diagram isn't one-to-one -one. and so we're really sampling the people who are most receptive to Monarch on this set anyways. That 54% is of 50 people. And so really there's like 26 or 27 
individuals testing this card who responded to the survey. That's much less than Reprieve or you know the top eight that we discussed on the other survey. That's a great point. It is crazy how many good Boros cards just on power level came out in this one set. There's the one we discussed, whose name I will not try to pronounce. There's Riders of Rohan, which doesn't include the Monarch, but I think is, you know, within 25% of that power level, if power is all that matters. Oh, I don't think There's so. There's also Aemer, King of Rohan. There's another one somewhere that I'm not seeing. Oath of Oral. <laughs> Yorl. Oath of Yorl. Yorth of Yorl. Yeah, these things are like there's four or five Boros gold cards that are all just really pushed compared to what we've seen before. And it's not like the typical equipment matters or attacking with bunches of things matters that we are used to seeing for Boros like archetypal space. So no surprise to me that these are really sought after. Okay, look, I'm going to say it. I feel like we've come a long way as a cube design community in the past, let's say, three to five years. And I think nowadays, if you see a really powerful card printed, it's more likely that cube designers will look a little bit circumspect at it, try and look at the play patterns aside if it's right for their cube. I think this card is egregious. Fourth Aerolingus is an uh, absolute abomination. This card should never have been printed. It's ridiculously powerful. It's... So good that like people are playing it in control lists in Legacy because you just put it everywhere. It's just absolutely busted. So if you are the kind of person that likes Minsk and Boo and you're like Oko, then go with God. Put your fourth Aer Lingus in your cube <laughs> and, and have a good time. If you are not in for the biggest design mistakes that Wizards has ever printed, then I don't think you should touch this card with the 10-foot pole. I think it's egregious. Yeah, this is one of those that is meant to be balanced around multiplayer and therefore breaks down in 1v1. I'm not playing it myself. And like this is one of the reasons that people are gun-shy about The Ring Tempts You. We're looking at cards like 4th Aerolingus, exclamation point, and seeing like how cracked that is and how it doesn't actually reward attacking. It rewards attacking with enough of your 2-2 trample hasty things to get through and leave the rest back to block to protect your monarchy. I mean, the, um, the best case of this card is you play a one drop on turn one, and then on turn two, you get an emblem that says you draw an extra card a turn. You get a Phyrexian Arena emblem with no life loss. You don't even make right. a token with it. You just get an emblem that says now you're controlled I can never win yeah uh, that's a great point it's I think it's I don't know it's, I, I'm disappointed to see so many people like over the moon with this card and obviously you know if people do their own things I, I shouldn't be disappointed when people are excited let about cards let people be happy and let have people, fun let Andy. people have let people have things but it's just it, it's I'm not going to be excited to play with or against this card in any cube I think it uh, it should it should not see play in a one on one zero sum magic I think it's just too messed up well, and for what it's worth, we're not actually separating these results by multiplayer cubes versus 1v1. That's so a great maybe point. we are yeah. just sampling EDH cubes and Brawl cubes and so on. I haven't looked at this data, but I've looked at what everyone's been saying in the discords and on Twitter and stuff, and there's plenty of people that are just real excited to jam this in the Boros section of their legacy-ish cube, and yeah. miss me with that. Miss me with that. Yeah, maybe we should question those uh, 
Look inside yourself, people. <laughs> Look inside yourself and figure out who hurt you that you want to put this card in your cube. I will say to that point, we do publish all this data and we do have the links for lots of these cubes. So if people do want to go and do a little bit more, just like, you know, browse it and see if you can come up with some hypotheses or do some additional data visualization on top of what we've done, that is out there for you. I think data is the perfect uh, note on which to end. We love data. Yeah, I think that's the thing is worth talking about in the uh, commander set. Riders of Rohan has got like 22% of people testing it, but now we're talking about like, what, 10 people that are testing that card, basically, that responded, maybe yeah. 11 or 12. So getting down to the area where, you know what, go to the website and go through these uh, responses in more detail, because uh, like we said, we only scraped the surface here, so you should go check out the long tail of cards people are testing and ratings for them to get a better sense for what cards might be interesting for you in your cube. If, you, uh, if you're one of the people that... Maybe it's a little uh, healthier with your attitude and relationship to the game, and you're not immediately diving super deep into the set, and uh, you're waiting for the dust to settle a little bit before you add some cards. Go check out the responses here and, uh, and see which cards might work for your own cube. Hey, Lucky Paper. This is Mike, a.k.a. Crowned Lemur, on Cube Cobra and the Twitch chat. The card I want to talk about is Samwise Gamgee. Food has been the often ignored Jan Brady of the Treasure Clue Food Trio, this set has introduced a lot of new and interesting ways to play with our food, and Samwise Gamgee is one of the more impactful cards to do so. I think this, combined with the limited competition for Celestia, will lead to a lot of cubers looking at Mr. Gamgee. Love the show. Thank you. Sail into the West. Despite the incredible amount of text on the card, plays as a four-mana wheel. If you run a vintage cube, with cards such as Fast Bond, Storm enabling cards, or even a five mana wheel like Memory Jar, I cannot say enough good things about this card. It is an instant speed version of the effect, which we have never gotten. And at four mana, the only other real competition is Wheel of Fortune, Time Twister, and the much, much worse version of D Diminishing Returns. If you like to draw cards and are including cards such as Exploration, Fast Bond, and other combo-tastic Storm stuff, this card is a must-add. I cannot say enough good things about it. Anything else anyone wants to say about these Lord of the Rings sets? I have two thoughts. One of them is just that it's really interesting looking at the graph of this set. So we always graph the average rating versus the consensus. So how much the, the distribution of responses for each individual card, you know, are a lot of people saying this is a one while a lot of people are saying it's a 10 or is everybody like this is definitely a 10 as well as the number of testers we show on this graph as well. And this graph looks a lot different from a lot of the other graphs we've seen. We usually do see this trend of like lots of people in the top right or lots of cards in the top right are rated by a lot of people. So we see that correlation, which makes sense. But here it's pretty dramatic. It's a pretty linear looking graph. Plus it's just like moved up the, the graph a bunch. There's no cards that have an average rating of less than five. So it's just like people rated these cards really highly. I wonder if that could be that we're just sampling a slightly different group of people because of, you Not know, the bigger the context depths, of yeah. social media right now. Yeah. Or, you know, this isn't the first set that we've done with our updated rating system, but we did update that fairly recently. So that could also have some impact. So I don't know what's going on there, but I'm curious about it. The other thing that I thought was kind of funny was, as you pointed out before we started recording, we already talked about all these top cards because this is just what you're putting in the Bun Magic Cube, the most average normal cube. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to share the the data analysis you sure. did? Sure. I mean, I might turn turn this into an article at some point. But I did a little an bit article of... about how your friend Andy is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not at all true. How your uh, he got your finger on the pulse. I did some analysis on all of the cubes that are featured at. KubeCon next year, just because I was a little bit curious, and I wanted to see, like, what are the most, what's the number of cards that are being tested? What cards are in the most Not tested. Cubes? What's the number of cards yeah. that are, what's, what's the, yeah. the raw number of unique cards that you're going to see in cubes at KubeCon? Right, and then I also, in, in conjunction with that, was like, well, how unique are these cubes? Some of them, the boat cube, have a lot of unique cards, because they're digging deep for boats. Uh, you know, anything that has a boat in the illustration, then it's not going to be played by a lot of other cubes. Some of those cubes... They don't have a lot of unique cards. Would you like to share which cube is the least unique and exactly how many unique cards it is? The Bun Magic Cube is the least unique, and I have zero unique <laughs> cards. I'm the only cube at CubeCon where every card in my cube is also in somebody else's cube. So, now, you could... Never mind. We're not going to make that interpretation. <laughs> there's two ways you could read it. Number one... You don't one, have to play this cube. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, honestly, this is a bigger conversation at some point for us to have. I do think this was illuminating for me as to I, I think your analysis is interesting but i also think that it does not it, in a lot of ways what is excluded is as or more important than what is included and i think especially when you're playing at this legacy power max ish territory this eternal cube power motivated territory i think what you don't include is really important and so while my cube has a lot of overlap in terms of the cards it includes with other cubes I've played a lot of the cubes that are in a similar territory to mine, and I know that the play patterns are way different because yeah. when you don't have a certain subset of, you know, let's just call them a fourth Aorlingus style cards, it really changes the way the cube actually plays, even though, you know, the rest of the cube might be 85% similar or whatever. The cards, the cards I'm excluding have a huge impact on the texture of games in the cubes that do include them. So yeah, you could either read it as I'm the most boring cube designer on the planet. I just you know do what everyone else does, uh, or maybe I'm a thought leader and everyone else does what I do. That's the other way to look at it, Anthony. No, I think there's actually an even even different and maybe I more, am a thought leader, more generous <laughs> and more accurate approach uh, or interpretation, which is that. I mean, there's also just some like mathematical factors. Have you have like doubled up on fetch lands and shock lands? So there's right. So there's fewer unique just... cards in my 360 card cube. I also played the smallest size you could play. So you know. I think what you've done is you've really created a unique environment embedded within like the most known iconic space. Everything that you're putting in there is not pet mm. cards that some weirdo thing that you just like and no one else has ever seen before. Everything there is a cube player's cube card that they've seen before, and it has some role in the magic community in the way that we think about magic and the way we think about cube. And that's my interpretation of those numbers. Though I did make some changes since you did this analysis. Uh, maybe... No one else is playing Barbarian Ring? I love Barbarian Ring. I played it in one draft no so far. Chance. I'm sure, no I'm chance. No sure chance you're the only it. Barbarian Ring. That'd be surprising. But we'll rerun, we'll rerun those numbers, and maybe we'll turn that into something more. An article about how my friend Andy is super. No, an article about how CubeCon is going to be awesome, and it's going to feature like a huge chunk of the cards that Magic has ever made are going to be draftable there. And selected by hand by all of the cube designers, so you get to ignore all the bad cards. Okay, challenged. Design challenge. challenge. Next year for KubeCon, someone has to design a cube only containing the cards mega cube. that were printed before <laughs> KubeCon 2023 uh -huh. that saw play in zero cubes in KubeCon. That is going That's to be interesting. That's a steep restriction. I would be so interested to see that happen, and I uh, I suspect there's maybe some people out there that are up for that challenge. They're just so. going to be like, oh, this this no one's going to be playing this card. Why would they? Oh, it's got a boat in it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot Crap. of... Crap. Like, 
we're also uh, I also for other reasons was looking at the distribution of cubes at KubeCon on the cube map, and we are polling from all over the, oh, yeah. the cube world. Like there is no area left untouched by the cubes at KubeCon. So. Yeah, any card, I think, could reasonably find a home in one of the cubes at KubeCon, but there's a bunch that haven't, and so somebody's got to design that cube. I, someone out there is up for the challenge. I believe it. If you need help uh, grabbing that list of all the cards, hit me up. Yeah, well, it, wait till we get closer, and, we, sure, and sure, the lists sure. are actually locked in in September, and then then you can get that list. All right, we've been uh, just dilly-dallying for a while here. Uh, anything else, Parker, before we, before we head out? Let's see. I want to acknowledge the few people, not just one, who are building Lord of the Rings set cubes. I think we've set a new record for the most cards tested from a single set. They're testing 277 Lord of the Rings cards, but with duplicates. So I think a total of 659 Lord of the Rings cards going into a single cube. Take that, course, Darth Pink Hippo. <laughs> Your record has been, has been crushed. <laughs> yeah, so I think... Like, this is a really beloved property, obviously, really resonant fantasy flavor, and I think really nice to be able to bring this into magic. I was a little skeptical about Universes Beyond, you know, frame issues notwithstanding, but I think this has been a really encouraging development in magic, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more sets like this, which I wouldn't have necessarily said before seeing this card file, but... It's been a real interesting set to look at and consider for Cube. Yeah, I think that's really cool, really well designed. I hope it does bring in some Lord of the Rings fans into Magic who, yeah, like I said in the last episode, you just have the greatest Lord of the Rings card game you could ever ask for uh, right now. So you can just play that and then that can be your entryway to, uh, to playing Cube in the future. How many Lord of the Ring fans that have never played Magic before are just getting into it and are listening to this right now? Not listening to this, tell you that much. Okay, Zero great. is the answer. But I do think there are Lord of the Rings fans out there that have never played Magic and maybe so are far, giving it a true. try for the first time. Okay. So we'll see. All right, that's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I got to edit this whole thing today, so we're going to wrap up. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to me. I'm now going to disappear into the night and uh, I forget what happens next in the story, but that's what I'm going to do. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Anthony coming over to my house, Parker getting up on Zoom, and us talking about the results of our survey. Thank you both for uh, doing this first thing in the morning on a Sunday with me. Happy to do it. And thank you to all of our respondents who gave us the data to make this possible. These are our true fans. These are not just the people that, you know, see a Reddit post and click on it. These are the people that actually care and follow the, follow the show. So uh, thanks to you. 